0: Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today's episode is brought to you by our newest partner, Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I've personally been using Element for nearly six months now daily, and it's not only the cleanest hydration powder in terms of function, but I love the taste, especially the citrus and watermelon flavors. Element supports a low-carb lifestyle and will boost your performance and recovery regardless of if you're a serious athlete or a weekend warrior. So head to drinkelement.com/slash subscribing to wellness. That's drink slash subscribing to wellness for a special introductory deal on your first order. You won't regret it.
1: Today on subscribing to wellness, we are joined by Jason Carp, founder and CEO of Human Co. Human Co. is a mission-driven holding company that invests in and builds brands focused on healthier living and sustainability. In addition to Human Co., Jason is also co-founder of Hue, known for its award-winning organic chocolate and one of the fastest growing snacking companies in the US. Hue was sold to Mondelez in January, 2021. Prior to Hue, Jason was the founder, CEO, and CIO of Torbillion Capital Partners, an investment fund that managed over $4 billion. We talked to Jason about incubating versus acquiring, the original story behind his chocolate company, and much more.
0: Jason, welcome to Subscribing to Wellness. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so, so much for joining us. We know you're incredibly busy, super appreciative. Um, to get us started, I mean, you are a pioneer in the health and wellness space, but you went through quite a quite a career in your early 20s on the finance side, and it, and it took a bit of time to kind of really realize your passion for health and wellness. Could you just take us through those early days in your 20s and kind of how the, the passion kind of unfolded?
2: Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I went straight out of college, uh, into finance. Um, and, uh, I was a business undergrad. Um, I always thought I was, I was pretty healthy. I was an athlete my whole life. I was a division one college athlete. Um, but in my first, you know, really my second year and third year working, um, I started to get really sick. Um, and, and developed a, a variety of what they thought were unlinked, but now it's clear they were linked diseases, the worst of which was a degenerative eye disease, where I was going blind um, at the age of 23. And um, they said there was no cure for what I had and that I would be fully blind by the age of 30, which for anybody is a devastating prognosis. Um, this is back in the year 2001. Um uh, when food as medicine wasn't really a thing, um, and I refused to believe it. um uh, probably out of naivete and optimism more than anything. um and I decided to just do a lot of my own research in inflammation, um autoimmune conditions, etc. And long story short, I decided to attempt, um, to cure myself through food and lifestyle, um, because the doctors had nothing else for me. Uh, and I just did not want to go blind. And so after, uh, it was probably toy, it was probably nine to 12 months. Um, but I started to see the differences within a few weeks. Um, I fully reversed all my diseases. And, um, after that, um, uh, I, realized how hard it was because part of how I did it was through uh, food elimination um and I had to give up a lot of the things that I really liked um and I grew up on junk food um uh, I, it turns out I have uh, the celiac genes I have significant gluten intolerance um I didn't know this I was eating bread and gluten five six times a day for my whole life um and a variety of other things also that were a problem and so um i uh took it upon myself to spend a lot of time on why are we all so sick um i was very interested because i got sick and then eventually i had children and um why are we the sickest generation in human history um how has this happened like and so i spent a ton of time as sort of a an armchair scientist in understanding you know human evolution, anthropology, nutrition, physiology. Um, and uh, I it's pretty clear for anyone to work that we are indeed poisoning ourselves and the food system is fully corrupt and poisoned. Um, and this is not like sensationalism. like amongst scientists, everyone knows this. Um, and and uh, my family and I decided, uh, many years later, um, starting in around 2010, that we needed to create a restaurant, uh, that was the manifestation of all these kind of principles that particularly my brother-in-law, Jordan Brown, uh, was my wife's brother and I were spending a lot of time on. Um, and, uh, we named it Hugh as in human, uh, Hugh started as a restaurant. Uh, most people don't know that. Um, uh, and the whole restaurant was dairy-free, gluten-free, refined sugar-free, everything that needed to be organic was organic um uh all the animal products were from evolutionarily consistent animal uh raising methods like the beef was grass-fed grass-finished pastured etc um uh because we wanted to create a place where we could trust everything that was there um and we knew that this was a way i could eat and not get sick again but we also thought this was something that people should be aware of that this is like a way that you could be healthier um and this was at a time when we were viewed as insane and totally crazy um and that was really how it began and I'll pause there because there's like a lot of other branches from there but um, yeah it really came out of my own personal sickness and and my own research uh and my brother-in-law's like fanaticism and research around how do we make great products and food That don't have all of these adulterants and don't have all of these horrible methods behind them. And how do we get back to a place that's consistent with how we evolved as humans, because our contention and my contention, which is why what what I do always has the word human in it, uh, is that we live at odds with how we've evolved. And that's why we're also sick.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious. And and I'd love to keep going past Hugh Kitchen and then obviously the launch of Hugh and, and so on. But just curious. So, so you said you completely changed your dietary regimen. You had talked about how you were kind of over consuming gluten and some other things you were insensitive to from an allergy perspective. What was like a typical day of meals for you during this time where you completely transformed your health? Was it paleo? Was it a lot of just unprocessed plants and, and, and meats or like what, what was working for you?
2: Um, before paleo was like a, like a real term, um, that was probably the easiest way to describe what we did. Um, and, and Hugh as a restaurant was very much thought of as a kind of modified paleo kind of restaurant. So, Um, everything had to be relatively consistent with how we evolved. Um, we had some modifications and I, I have modifications like in strict paleo, they don't consume legumes. I do, um, um, strict paleo, they don't consume any kind of grain. Uh, You know, I, I will have some rice. Um, uh, but yes, the the closest thing to how we kind of have done it has been a, a kind of modified paleo. Um, it's definitely not vegan. It's definitely not um, keto. Um, uh, but yes, it's, it's, it's as unprocessed as possible. It's as close to the earth as possible. Um, there's a fair amount of animal products in the way I eat, uh, but the animals have to be sourced and raised in a way that's evolutionarily consistent with how they have been for thousands of years.
1: Yeah, I'd love to dig into the transition between Hugh Kitchen as a restaurant into what many people now know today is Hugh Chocolate. Um which yeah. I feel like is a staple in most grocery stores, most bodegas in New York. So you had this amazing healthy restaurant that was very new to this world of paleo. I often frequented it when I was in New York. Um that and is. and then you and then you launched the chocolate bar. Can you talk us through kind of that awakening transition
2: yeah the chocolate was kind of an accident and uh we uh it's a very funny story um I I believe on our website we said we couldn't find a chocolate that met our specs so we had to make our own uh which is which is actually true um we were right before we opened we were experimenting the whole restaurant was grain and gluten-free right or gluten and grain-free and so we were baking a lot of grain-free items you will remember um, the, the sections, Rachel, of, uh, the cookies, the scones and the muffins. And so good. Uh, so good. And, um, we needed chocolate chips for these things. And we, when we, uh, were looking around all the chocolate chips we could find had refined genetically modified cane sugar in them, had soy, had preservatives, had soy lecithin in them. And we're like, wow, like we can't find chocolate chips from like you know, from a distributor that we can use. So we realized we had to make our own chocolate, and we didn't know how. About, you know, everything we did, we by the way we were not experts on at the time, and we definitely needed to figure it out by hiring people smarter than us who knew these things. And we hired a French pastry chef who 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 used to moonlight making his own chocolate uh, to help us create a chocolate that had two ingredients in it, which was, which was uh, cacao and uh, unrefined coconut sugar. Um, and he'd never made chocolate this way. It turns out it's much harder to make chocolate this way versus the conventional way. And after a lot of trial and error with this guy, we came up with a chocolate chip that we liked. And at the same time, we thought it was so good. My brother-in-law, Jordan, had this idea of turning them into bars um and just selling them in the store and um within a few months of being open one of our our chefs his girlfriend worked at the Columbus Circle location of Whole Foods and he used to bring her home our chocolate and one day she said this is like amazing healthy chocolate can we sell this in Whole Foods and uh this was before Amazon bought Whole Foods where they had these local foragers where you could literally just have like a random local company be in one Whole Foods only Mm -hmm. And we were like, sure, like we'll go into Whole Foods. And we went into what's called the specialty section where they sold like cheese and olive oil. It was not in the chocolate section. And they were ten dollars a bar at the time, um, not because we were trying to make a lot of money, because it actually cost that. (laughs) And uh, and it took off. And and then when it started really flying, we realized we needed to separate the businesses and we created kind of Hugh restaurant co and Hugh products co. Um, and that was how the chocolate was born.
1: I have to ask a random side question only cause I'm a massive fan of the chocolate. You only recently launched chocolate chips, like only recently. And I'm curious why only well, recently you came out with chocolate chips if you the product started with chocolate chips.
2: It's a good question. That so is a good question. Wow. <laughs> we, we we well, we only we we've had big chocolate chips for many years now called gems. Chunks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: The, well, no, the hunks are different than the gems. The gems are thick hexagon-shaped chocolate bites um, that many, many people use as chocolate chips, and we do too. Um, um What we recently launched, I think you're referring to, was the first no sugar added chocolate chips on the the market.
1: Yeah, the orange bag.
2: Those are the first no sugar added chocolate chips that exist that do not use sugar alcohols or fake crap. Um, And they're keto. So those are new. It was a form factor issue for us originally. Um, We wanted to go with bigger, chunkier chocolate chips, which is why we launched. Gems were one of our first products. Those were pretty early. But in terms of like the more Nestle-style chocolate chips, it was really <clears throat> that we just wanted thicker, chunkier chocolate chips as our first chocolate chips. Um, so that was the reason. Okay. And,
0: and, and so you launch, you launch in this one store in Whole Foods. I'm imagining that the velocities are excellent. Um, and does that ignite a fire where a lot of other Whole Foods buyers become interested and it just kind of spreads because the velocities continue to be really healthy just because the product quality is so higher. Talk a bit about how kind of the company then scaled over the next three to five years.
2: Yeah, it was really, look. I I was a professional investor by background. I was managing my own hedge fund at the time. Um, Jordan and my wife were full-time on the business. I was the chairman. For the first many years, we had no outside investors, um, so which was which was deliberate, um, and and it was really because we wanted to have control over how we did what we did, and a lot of what we did in the in the first few years was uh, was not profit seeking. Um, it was trust building, it was brand building, um, and we knew that uh, other investors would not be okay with the way we were approaching it. Um, and we thought a lot of other investors just wouldn't get the, what, what we were trying to do. Um, but to be clear, like, we didn't know that this was going to like work out. Like this was a, a big part of, of the decision to invest the kind of money that I did, um, was really around passion. And it was about like, can we change the food system? You know, if this ends up being a financial win, great. Um, but Like a big part of this was like, we were, we actually wanted like clean stuff out there. And so in the first year and a half, two years, we were very bootstrappy, um, because we didn't have like venture investors and it was, it was our money. And so we didn't want to lose. And so the way we built the company was very unconventional for now, which was like a lot of just what we call boots on the ground, like Jordan and my other brother-in-law, Zach, like. They were literally walking around with suitcases full of chocolate around New York City, going store to store to store and saying like, taste this. And I mean, literally, this is like our first like our first thousand doors were not from distribution. It was literally from like door to door salesman stuff. Um, And Jordan and his brother, really, Jordan did an amazing job in, in kind of building it brick by brick. Instead of like partnering with random distributors. Um, and, and that was actually, it was much slower going that way, but it was helpful because we had a lot of pushback from people saying like, why is your chocolate $9? Why is your chocolate eight, why is your chocolate eight, $7? Like, um, and, and at the time there were a couple fancy chocolates that were like gift chocolates where you would give them for like Valentine's day or, or some holiday, I um, think of, there's a brand called Vogue. Um, there's a brand called Mass Brothers um, that were like also like nine, ten dollar chocolate, but they they weren't organic. Um, they didn't have our standards. They were just like super like bougie. And and people didn't eat a lot of them because they were gift chocolate, um, whereas ours was just like delicious chocolate. And so we had to kind of bridge that. Um, but, yeah, the first couple of years were um, were very slow. I mean, if, if you look at kind of a revenue growth from 13 was the first year we were in stores to now, and now we're, you know, we're actually the number one premium chocolate in the United States now. Um, and wow. we were, we were the fastest growing chocolate, I think four or five years in a row, but it really went like parabolic. Like the first two, three years were very slow, very small. And then it just, but you, what you said was, was right. Um, dan where the velocities were what defined us um, yeah. the the repeats the velocities um and then the word of mouth um we spent no money on marketing either and the word of mouth was just uh, you know phenomenal um but it was yeah it was very much an organic process about how it kind of grew in the first 4 years
0: yeah almost i almost feel like too you made the point about becoming the number 1 premium chocolate in the US and I'm not extremely educated on the premium chocolate category. I think it's probably going up against Godiva or like Ferrero, Toblerone. But I also feel like you guys built this like fun, inclusive brand where it didn't feel like when you were going to buy HUE, it was like this like one-off special occasion where it was like a super big indulgence and treat. Like Hugh is this like premium chocolate, but it was something I felt comfortable buying every time I went to the grocery store because it was so high quality um so thank you guys crush that me. to be honest and as well
1: he speaks to that too because it's in like yeah. the cardboard more instead of this like yep. kind of cardboard thing um so i'm curious during the sale of hue and the exit process did you have the vision for human co as a holding company and like how did that kind of begin and start
2: Human Coast started before we sold Hugh. Um, so what happened was by, you know, fast forward a few years, Hugh started to become quite uh, big and real to the point where we as a family, we recognized, like, we're over our skis. Like, we need to hire, like, real people who are from this industry because, like, we can't keep this like a family business. Mm-hmm. Um And we brought in a lot of very real people from other CPG companies, big companies, et cetera, to really help us, Um, you know, and, and um, uh, our our current CEO, who was like, you know, one of our like most real kind of hires along the way is a guy named Mark Ramadan, who was also the founder of Sir Kensington. Um, And he was at Unilever at the time, Unilever bought Sir Kensington. Um, And, Mark had just tremendous experience um, in also building like teams. And, you know, we had obviously built the team over the years. um, But the way we functioned as a family was not as much on the like hardcore running of the business um, as much as a lot of the people around us that we hired. And so um, uh, when I was... Uh, getting towards the end of my hedge fund career. Um, I'd done it for 20 years. I was really kind of done. Um, I was very blessed and fortunate with my um, the financial success in that field, which allowed me to afford some of these risks. Um, but uh, I, I wasn't it wasn't rewarding to me anymore and I was kind of burnt out. and I felt like um, a lot of what I was doing in health and wellness was where my heart was and it's also how I live. And I thought, you know what? Like at that point, we actually had a bunch of outside investors. Um, uh, and at that point, Hugh was very specifically a chocolate cookies and crackers company, mostly chocolate. Um, and I thought, you know what? There needs to be more brands and more products that have the same philosophy and ethos of Hugh, but in other categories because we felt like what we did in chocolate was so next level in terms of both quality and uh, strictness that why isn't there, why aren't there like this level of standard in other food categories? Um, and we knew that Hugh couldn't like extend into other food categories without kind of harming its brand, right? Like there wasn't going to be Hugh pizza, you know, that would just be like weird in, in the, in the grocery store. So, And a lot of my drive was when I was sick or when I've been doing my various food diets and elimination diets and and all the autoimmune crap that I've had to do for 20 years. um, What I regretted the most was when I had to give up foods that I loved. And most comfort foods uh, or foods that bring people happiness and joy tend to be the dirtiest, grossest, like most processed foods. And so for me, I thought like, you know what, like everyone knows salads are healthier than Twinkies. I don't need to convince anybody of that. Um, And in fact, everyone's known that for about 70 years and it hasn't affected the human trajectory in developed countries uh, in any positive way. So where I thought I'd have the most impact and where I thought I'd have the most fun would be to go after food categories that are foods that bring people joy, um, but cleaning them up. And so that was the idea behind HumanCo and that, you know, having studied a lot of public companies, all these public conglomerates have been around 50, 100 years, literally. Um, And their their sole focus is profits. They're public companies. Their shareholders, want profits. So they focus on shelf life, margins, shitty, synthetic ingredients, all this stuff. Um, I thought, why not take a page out of the public company playbook, create a conglomerate that is that has some of the benefits of being a holding company, but has the philosophy and approach that what we did with Hugh, but in, in lots of categories. And then if we have a bunch of companies that are all under one roof, we can share, we can share in resources, we can share in marketing, we can share in sales. And so now when we go to somebody like Rachel and say, hey, Rachel, you love Hugh," you know, You love what we stand for. You don't even have to look at the ingredients when you buy something from you. And and a lot of when when Hugh evolved and we did crackers and we did cookies, people just like buy it and they wouldn't even ask, like, is this clean? And so I wanted to be able to do that across multiple brand categories where you could say, you know what? I really want like an organic ice cream that I can trust. Boom. We have Cosmic Bliss. And like, oh, but what about pizza? Like I'm having a kid's birthday party. I want to have pizza also. Boom. We have against the grain. Or, oh, I want a snack for after school, or I want a snack at the game, or I want a snack for the Super Bowl, or I want finger food, like, boom, we have snow days. And so, like, once you realize who we are, you realize that everything we make falls under your sort of circle of trust, and it allows you to live an easier kind of existence, because for people who read ingredient labels or for people who were sick, it's so hard to like navigate, like what did they put in this? Oh, there's that one ingredient, I can't have it. And so that was the idea behind human.
1: So I know there are a million protein powders on the market these days, but when I tell you that this protein powder is my absolute favorite, I mean it. Sprout Living makes plant-based protein powders that help support my active lifestyle. Sprout Living only uses real powerful superfood adaptogens and nootropics. Their blends are not only tasty, but also functional. No gums or thickeners like most protein powders use. No natural flavorings, just the whole real deal ingredients. My personal favorite is the vanilla Leucama. Head over to go.sproutliving.com backslash subscribing to wellness and use code sub2protein for 20% off your order. I love that. Um, I'm curious how you think through the strategy of incubating, investing and acquiring businesses. So you mentioned the brands all under human co snow days was incubated against the green was acquired cosmic bliss acquired. Like, how do you think through the, the, the variance in, in this?
2: It's a good question. So because our, our guardrails and our approach is so strict, There aren't a lot of brands that exist that we think make sense for us to acquire um, because we'd have to clean them up too much for it to sort of meet our standards. Um, In the case of Cosmic Bliss, which used to be Coconut Bliss, and the case of Against the Grain, uh, they were already great. Um, And uh, they were two of my favorite brands in my household. We're a strictly gluten-free household. It's very hard, not so hard anymore, but it used to be very hard to find things that tasted good. And were also gluten-free. Um, um, and so if, if it's a, if it's a brand that we love that has our values um, and they really care about people and planet over profit, um, then it's, it's in play, right? If it's a brand that is just about making money, they're, they're just, it's already off the table. Um, and if it's a brand where maybe they have one or two ingredients that we're not thrilled with, and we kind of have to switch it out, and this was the case of Against the Grain. So Against the Grain, um, uh, most of their products were really, really clean. They source all their ingredients from farms in Vermont, um, but they use canola oil. I'm not a fan of canola oil. Um, after we bought the the, the company, uh, we spent about nine months uh, reformulating it, removing all canola oil, and putting in olive oil. Um, and so now it's a super clean label. Took us nine months, by the way. That did not enhance our profits, as you would imagine. Um, you know, we, we kind of joke, but it's serious. We're probably the only company that buys other food companies and upgrades the ingredients.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh,
2: li- literally, no, like, li- no cost
0: li- energy is no cost energy.
2: Is. Yeah, like actually, literally, the only one that does that. more expensive Um,
1: ingredients in here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, um, because at the end of the day, it's like, I'm feeding this to my family, you know, like, and, and, um, whereas, uh, snow days, um, came out of kind of necessity. I grew up on things like Totino's pizza bites, which are like the most disgusting nuclear waste, abhorrent ingredient label you've ever seen. Uh no exaggeration, over 90 ingredients in in Totinos. Nine zero. Um, and they use imitation cheese. Um, it does it actually says imitation cheese on it. I mean, it's like unbelievable that people buy this stuff. Um, but I ate them and like they were kind of good. They were kind of good is the scary thing. Of course, like probably like probably why I got sick was because this is all I ate. Yeah. And um, and now I have two children. Um, there's a lot of times I want like a quick, easy thing. And I'm like, everything out there is like kind of clean, but it's not great. Uh, and we, so we looked out there, Rachel, and, and there wasn't anything that was like interesting. And I wanted to create a frozen, convenient comfort food that met our specs. So could we create an organic gluten-free grain-free pizza bite that uses only grass-fed dairy? And of course- Initially, the economics on that sounds insanely bad. Um, and it's not great, to be honest. It's okay. Um, but we did it. And they are, have you had them? I'm allergic to dance,
1: so I'm, I'm waiting for you guys to come out with a vegan one. They
2: I've are them. spectacular. They're, they're great. I like the, yeah. the, and I say this without my own bias, which of course is massive. Um, uh, the feedback has been incredible. Um, because they actually taste better than Totino's and they're actually healthy and they have the nutritionals of a meal and they cook in 5 to 8 minutes um and so this was something where it didn't exist so we had to create it and and so the way we kind of think about it is if if there's something out there that we think could fit within human co already exists um we'll think about making it part of our family and if it's something that doesn't exist we'll think about making our own version
0: yeah I've tried, I've tried Snow Days, I've tried Coconut, and I haven't tried uh, Against the Grain yet, but maybe if you guys have it at Expo this year, I'll get to try it. Um, My question for you, it's, it's kind of more futuristic. I guess just fast-forwarding, like let's say we're 15 to 20 years in the future of Human Co. Is the goal here to go public and compete with PepsiCo and Coke and KDP and these other big CPGs that largely have kind of harmed, I would say, kind of what's on shelf in a grocery store? How do you see kind of, how do you define success for human co?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would say that's definitely one of our paths is to take it public. Um, But, you know, having been a public market investor, I think we have to be very, very explicit about what our values are. And profit is important, but it's not our only value. Um, because again, like I could be doing things with our business that are far more profitable than we are. Um, and I think it's really important. And the good news is, I think, I think the tide is starting to turn in in certain categories where particularly the younger generations are starting to care about other things besides just profit. Um, you know, are you improving people's lives? Are you not harming the planet? Are you, you know, providing a product that allows people to live longer and healthier and, you know, not get sick. Like these sound insane that I'm even saying them out loud, but like it's the way it works right now. And, um, to be a public company, um, or to be a large mission driven company like a Patagonia, um, you have to be very explicit about what you don't do. Um, and you know, for me, uh, in the same way, I think we did it with with Hue Chocolate. Um, it's about how many people are we touching. Um, and you know, like the happiest I am when I'm at my like work is when we get a letter from somebody, and amazingly, we get a bunch of these, where it'll be someone who was sick, or someone who's celiac, or someone who had an issue, and they'll say, "I didn't think I could ever have a pizza bite again." or I didn't think I could ever eat ice cream again, or we got one a few weeks ago, which was amazing. We opened up our first uh, cosmic bliss ice cream shop, scoop shop in Portland, Oregon. And uh, this couple who has been gluten-free for 20 years has never eaten a gluten-free waffle cone. Um, And they, they they basically wrote us this thing and said, we never thought we would be able to eat a cone again. Um, And this is like the first time in 20 years that we've had a cone and it's so amazing. And like, you know, and and literally like stories about how we've changed people's lives, um, because when you've had foods that are so joy inducing and then you can't eat them for a long time, it's like really hard. Yeah. Um, and so for me, a big like did we succeed would be, um, you know, are we national? Are we, you know, are we raising the bar? you know, for other companies um, where other companies would be like, yeah, we're not going to use that ingredient anymore either because it's garbage. Um, and and you've seen that happen in other industries um, where there's been like collective, I don't want to call it shaming, but there's been this sort of collective acknowledgement that like certain things are really bad and should not be. And then they all kind of swear it off and they all say like, yeah, we're not using X anymore. Um, you know, that happened with carrageenan. Um, where for a long time, every plant-based milk had carrageenan in it. And then all of a sudden you started seeing no carrageenan. And like, then everyone like, yes, no carrageenan. And then before you know it, like it's out. Um, for me, a, a sign of success would be, um, just providing, um, cleaner, better options for comfort foods. And then the other thing, which is a little controversial then is teaching people that you get what you pay for in food. Um, and, and changing the, the, the paradigm and the mentality in America, specifically, that cheap food is cool. Um, and, and this is not a commentary around people's uh, socioeconomic status. Um, it is a myth that you have to be wealthy to eat healthy. Um, and, and the reason it's a myth is you just have to look at all, you know, if you look at some of the lower socioeconomic demographics, um, including people that are literally at poverty line, um, you just have to look at what they spend their money on. Yeah, and and basically the stats are: if you own a smartphone, that's it. If you own a smartphone, which is ninety nine percent of this country, you you have enough disposable income to be able to upgrade your food. Um, when you look at how like a lot of people in this country spend money, they spend it on things like soda, booze, cigarettes. They spend it on streaming services like Netflix and Spotify. Yeah. And they spend it on Nikes and Adidas, yeah. $150 pair of sneakers when like you can buy $20 pair of sneakers like and and or they might go to Starbucks twice a so week and spend $7 on a coffee. Like it, it is it is a complete misperception. Uh, um, it's about choice. though. Like you have to choose to say, I'm going to spend an extra $2 on a cheeseburger. I should never want to eat a $3 cheeseburger. Right. Like like that tells me there's something wrong if it's two dollars, like a cheeseburger should never cost two dollars. So for me, a big part of our mission is educating people that when you start rewarding better practices, this happened with grass fed milk, grass fed milk 10 years ago was this bizarre, bougie, like only in farmers market thing. And it was three X the price of conventional milk. Um, there's been so much demand over the last decade by people demanding better practices around how the cows are raised and the in, improved nutrient content of grass-fed milk, that because of the invisible hand, there's been a lot of production because people are asking for it. And now the price difference between grass-fed milk and conventional milk is probably fifty percent down from three hundred percent. And so a big goal of of ours, A Human Co, is to teach people that. You should pay more for better practices and better nutrition. And then that will encourage the farmers to invest in what they do so that they stop doing the really bad practices.
1: Yeah. It's it's a hard it's a hard shift. And I love that you guys are working so hard to to bring education to consumers. Um so I think
0: you- sorry, I think also too, Jason, like it's so exciting your point on the younger generation and just the fact that Percent of disposable income for Gen Z's and Millennials compared to Baby Boomers and Gen X that goes to health and wellness is so much higher. It seems like just the willingness to pay naturally, right, for these younger generations is going to really, like, help the category um, in terms of taking share away from those, those you know, value lower price items. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so... Human Co. is a holding company. You have your investing side. You have your brand side. You guys have done incredible rebrands, as we saw with Cosmic Bliss. Um, I'm curious, what's something you've done really well that you, you want to share and something that you feel like you guys still have room for improvement and can do better on?
2: Oh, I mean, uh, the, the latter I have a lot. <laughs> um, the uh, I, I think what we did with Cosmic Bliss was really special. Um, it's still early days. Um, but when we bought, it was coconut bliss. And when we bought it, it was a organic plant-based only ice cream brand. Um, it was the number two plant-based ice cream. Um, it was started in 2006. So when like plant-based was not cool.
1: Wasn't it Um, originally the Luna and like Larry? Luna and
2: Larry started it. Yeah. Um, and then, and Luna and Larry was on the label for a long time. Um, another family bought it, um, from them very early on around 2006, um, and kept Luna and Larry on there for a long time. Uh, but it was, it was dairy free. Um, not, it was not meant to be vegan in terms of like ethical vegan values. It was meant to be like dairy free for allergen concerns. Um, um but it was always a sustainable focus company massive efforts and and approaches towards fair uh trade labor sustainability around the packaging and around the sourcing so like they've lived their values for 15 16 years anyway um it's also like i think the best tasting and the cleanest label of the plant-based ice creams um and when after we bought it um uh, and the, and this was when the plant-based craze was like parabolic, um, you know, peak beyond meat, Oatly peak, impossible, all this, and then all the synthetic, weird plant-based fake stuff, um, which you can tell I don't really, uh, uh approve of, but, um, uh, we did a lot of our own work and we're like, wait a minute, like 97% of, of ice cream in this country is still dairy. And globally, 99% of ice cream is dairy. And the vast majority of that 97 is conventionally farmed, factory farmed dairy, which is like, if you ever watch the videos, it's horrific to watch the way that they do this stuff. Um, And there's been very little innovation in the dairy category. Dairy was synonymous with like suicide, if you brought it up because everyone was like plant-based, plant-based, plant-based sustainability. And there was this misperception that all dairy was terrible for the earth and that all plant-based was great for the earth, um, which is is a very nuanced discussion, which I don't know if you have time to go into, but it's not true. Um, and we're like, why isn't there like a hue level caliber dairy ice cream? If 97% of the ice cream in this country is still dairy. And by the way, if you can consume dairy, I've literally never met a human that says that the dairy version doesn't taste better than the plant-based version of ice cream. Never, ever, ever. I haven't found one. And so, um, I thought like, why are, why isn't there like an organic grass fed, sustainably sourced dairy ice cream? It doesn't exist. It's crazy. And then I realized why it doesn't exist. It's very hard to do. Um, and it's expensive. Um, um, so we set out on a mission to see if we could do it. Um, we had to we had to find farms that that produced uh, grass-fed, grass-finished, pastured milk the way we wanted uh, and was consistent with our values. Um, we actually did our own what's called a life cycle analysis where our, our uh, ice cream per pint uh, produces almost 30% fewer greenhouse gas emissions per pint than conventional dairy. Um, and the taste is is epic. The, the the really fun thing about grass-fed dairy is it also tastes better. So it's not just better for the cow. It's not just better for the earth. It's better for – and it's better for you. It also tastes better. Um, so except for the fact that it costs more, it's like a win-win-win. Um, and I don't know – you you can't have it, Rachel. But um, Daniel, have you had our vanilla grass-fed dairy yet? I haven't had it. Okay. I would tell all of your listeners, and I'll personally – like refund you it (laughs) it, personally. Yeah. If it's not one of the best tasting vanilla ice creams you've ever had in your life out of a pint, like we will refund you. It is that amazing. We spent so much time on it. Um, And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like a winning in terms of how good it is. Um, And it's got all those other attributes in terms of sustainability Nutritional benefit; it has forty percent less added sugar than the other premium ice creams like Van Leeuwen and Jenny's, Um, and so it's just like one of those like win-win wins. The only catch is it's more expensive because it's harder and better for you and the planet and the cows to do it this way. So I'm very proud of that effort. It took us a long time. It was definitely not something a public company would ever do. it was a big investment it's definitely not profitable for us yet um but it's it's incredible in terms of like showing the world that you can do this stuff um
1: you'll have it at expo right
2: yeah we're not exhibiting this year at expo i Uh, will be there okay okay, we exhibited last year um this year we're not exhibiting um so it won't be there but you can find it in sprouts we launched it just like just last year so it's pretty new Cool. If you go to cosmicbliss.com and put in your zip code, you can see where we sell the, the dairy version. Um uh and then if you ask your grocery store why don't you carry it, maybe they'll start to listen. Um awesome. last uh, what, last few. Sorry, go ahead. she asked me that was what I'm what I'm happy with. You're saying uh, what, okay. do you, what do you feel like you're not? Yeah. Um you know, I think I, I think the um it gets back to what we talked about earlier. Uh, Daniel, which is um, I don't think we've done as good of a job um, explaining our value proposition through our packaging. Like if you go to our websites, you'll get it. Um, If you listen to us talk, you'll get it. But if all you're doing is picking it off the shelf, like it's not clear to you how much better uh, Cosmic Bliss is versus say Jenny's or Van Leeuwen. Um, If all you do is look at the front of the pack. And you don't have that much time, especially in the freezer section, to, to, to teach people because they're freezing and they they don't want to be in the freezer section for very long. So I think we could be doing a better job of educating and explaining, like, why is this so much better for you, for the planet, for your family? Um, and, and that is a big part of our mission is, is how do we do that more? Because once people understand it, they don't go back. You know, once you sort of realize, like, how much crappier some of these other brands are in terms of of how they approach you and and your family you don't go backwards but like you got to teach them that and and I don't think we've done as good of a job as we could be in that
0: gotcha um last few questions one kind of more broad do you believe you know you know this health and wellness space better than almost anyone especially when it comes to ingredient quality sourcing manufacturing etc do you think there is of an ideal human diet for someone who you know doesn't have like allergies or kind of certain very like specific restrictions or do you feel that it's kind of no one size fits all everyone has different dna and kind of personal preferences and and kind of there's no right ideal human diet and then lastly do you let your kids eat junk ever
2: oh good two questions so the the first question is i don't um and, and, and I know we only have like 10 minutes left, so I'll be quick. But um, w- a lot of the work and research I did when I was trying to figure out like why we're all sick, why did I get sick? Um, one of the greatest things you can study are indigenous populations all over mm-hmm. the world. And there's many of them that, that exist still today that live the way they lived when we were hunter-gatherers like a thousand plus years ago, yeah. um, isolated societies of hunter-gatherer types. And they have these indigenous populations all over the world, from jungle climate to Arctic climate to here in this country to Africa. Um, And their diets are vastly different. Um, And, you know, if you go into the Arctic, you'll find tribes that will eat uh, blubber and meat most of the year because you can't grow fruits and vegetables in the Arctic. Right. So they're massive carnivores. You'll find tribes like in Africa, like the Maasai tribe that lives off of cow blood um, and and meat. You'll find uh, hunter-gatherer kind of tribes that are all gatherers, and it's all fruits, veg, and seeds. Um, They have vastly different diets from vegan to carnivore. They have no incidence across all of them. They have no incidence of heart disease, diabetes, obesity. They also have no incidence of autism. They have no incidence of allergies. They have no incidence of ADHD uh, Mm. and no incidence of of any of our modern things. And the only thing consistent across all those tribes is that they eat very close to the earth. So everything is unprocessed and everything is from the earth. If it's animals, they're wild animals that are like literally out of nature. If it's plants, it's out of the ground, no pesticides, no processing. So the only thing I'd say, Daniel, is... um, Eating less processed diets that are as close to the farm as possible, whether it's dairy, meat, veg, fruit, whatever, will make everybody healthier. Um, As to whether you do better on a vegan diet or better on a more meat-based diet, like, I think that's DNA specific. Um, But my contention is that all humans would do far better on less processed food. And the kids? (laughs) I do let my kids eat what I'll call kind of healthy junk food, but there's certain foods that are just like nevers, right? What are those? Like, yeah. Processed processed like food dyes, like any food dye that has a number after it. Like no fruit roll-ups. Like Red 40, you know, and Blue Lake, like whatever the number is after Blue Lake. Like what about many like
1: Oreos?
2: Many of No. Um, many of these are banned in Europe, um, literally for being known carcinogens, but they're allowed here in this country. Um, if you ever want to look and have fun, like go to food, babes, Instagram, where she puts, you know, the the Skittles in the U S versus the Skittles in the UK side by side, it's bananas because the UK no. bans most of the stuff that we allow. And so food companies literally have healthier versions in the UK than they have here. Cause they're allowed to do shittier versions here. Um, I don't let them have soda. Um, I'll let them have healthy soda, like poppy or Olipop. Um, uh, we're a gluten-free household, so that's out. But anything that's like hyperchemical, no. Um, but we eat like a lot of ice cream in my house. When we go out, like we can't always find grass-fed meat. So we'll have regular, you know, if it's a nice restaurant, whatever, like, I think it's important that you live 80, 20, which is how I live. Um, I've, I've met, as you can imagine, a lot of people people in our circles who are so neurotic yeah. about like like I wake up at this hour I sauna I co plunge this is the only food I can eat from this hour to this hour and and you you see them and they actually look unhealthy and they look like like skeletal and gaunt and like they're miserable people and 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 what you realize is that a big part of being healthy is having flexibility and that um and not being overly neurotic about everything because otherwise the stress levels and the cortisol that you have from trying to be excessively neurotic will end up harming you more than your food. Um, And so we try to live in 80, 20 household. um, And which does allow for like, if there are birthday parties and there's gluten-free cake and it's full of sugar, but it's gluten-free, no problem.
1: I love that. I think more people need to listen to that. We've definitely, I mean, as you know, in, in this circle of consumer, it's really easy to get wrapped up in the craziness of labels and diets and this, free of this and free of this. Um, but I appreciate your 80-20 rule. Um, Jason, thank you so much for your time. We absolutely love chatting with you. i um, excited to keep connecting.
0: All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jason.
2: All right,
1: today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now, I literally can't miss a day. It's the first thing I put in my body every single morning. As someone who suffers from IBS, AG1 has completely improved my gut health and allows me to have sustained energy throughout the day. And since I'm always on the go, The travel packs make it so easy to stay consistent wherever I am.
0: Love it. I've personally been taking AG1 for a while. And as someone who lacked a multivitamin routine, AG1 has been the perfect product to mix into my morning routine. Truthfully, I was a skeptic at first as I'm with most supplements and vitamins, but I felt noticeably better at the start of morning workouts and definitely have seen an improvement in my digestive health. I tend to mix my AG1 with two tablespoons of lemon juice and coconut water, and it's delicious. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash STW. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash STW to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness and we'll see you next time.